Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 46, verses 5 to 10. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot they cannot move. Even, even though some cry out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it, heart, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I made known, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. This is the word of the Lord. And our reading from Matthew is Matthew chapter, starting Matthew chapter 8, going into Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you have a Bible, feel free to open that and follow along. It'll also be on the screens. So reading from Matthew 8, starting at verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, they went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. In chapter 9, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, go home. And the man got up and went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, will you send your spirit now upon us specially, that as your word is preached, we may hear, that our hearts may be open, 
that we may be comforted as we need comfort and challenged as we need challenging. We thank you that your word, Lord, is steadfast, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, the title for today's sermon is As One with Authority, and the part of, of that today is As One with Authority Over Satan and Over Sin. And today's passage is really a continuation of what we've been looking at the last few weeks, and it's a continuation of what we looked at last week and what's just a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 8, which is Jesus has just calmed the storm with his disciples out there on the Sea of Galilee, and the wind and the waves died down, the billions of molecules, he rebuked them, and they were calm, and they were still, and all the people who saw this said, what kind of man is this? that could do this, all the disciples were there, gathered around, witnesses. And we come in now to this ending of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, and the disciples are now nowhere to be found. It's a set of verses that focus quite solely on Jesus. He's the main character now in these, what he does. We don't hear uh, the disciples much about them in these verses, and we have two particular parts of the authority of Jesus that we see emphasized here, him and his authority over the kingdom of Satan and over sin. Over the kingdom of Satan, we'll look at two points, which is the reality and the results of, of that kingdom, also that it's defeated. And then over sin, starting in chapter 9, we'll look at Christ's authority over sin, how he recognizes it, it's recognized, and then also it is removed. So are you ready? All right, here we go. Verse 28 starts. It says, Jesus uh, arrives at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes. It's a clue for us as we read this scripture that something new is coming. He arrives, it says, at the other side. You'll see a, on the map there, you can see a picture, I think, of the Sea of Galilee and how on the, uh, he goes to the other side now, uh, maybe down to the right-hand side of the map on the bottom there. It's a different territory, it's a different region, it's a different place, it's a, a Gentile region, not a Jewish region, it's a, called the Decapolis sometimes right near there, and it's not only a new region or territory physically and geographically, but more importantly for us as we understand this story, it's a new spiritual territory, it's a new spiritual region because Jesus is going to come face to face with the earthly kingdom of Satan and his demons. And so we come to the next set of verses, verses 28 to 31, and we come into Christ's authority over Satan, and the first thing we'll look at is the reality of that kingdom and its results, the results of Satan's work. It says, two, the first thing he sees when he gets to that new region, it says, there are two demon-possessed men in verse 28, coming from the tombs, meet him. And they were so violent that no one could pass by. So let's just pause here for a minute about the reality of the kingdom of Satan and his demons. It says, two demon-possessed men. How many of you feel uncomfortable when I say the word Satan or demons? <laughs> That's often something that is against our modern sensibilities, isn't it, today? 
All of us who have been around in the Western world so well, we've all gone to school and we've read books and we've, we've read blogs and we've listened to things and we know better than to believe in the reality of something like Satan and his demons, don't we? It's against our, it's an affront, as it were, to our modern scientific thinking. After all, we live in a society today where science, what we can measure physically and see with our hands and understand with our brains is the most absolute and true. Often we have that cultural mind view, a world view. But in the time of Jesus, and even today, we got to understand that this is a reality in which we live and in which Jesus lived. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the reality of Satan and his demons. We see, uh, we see Job, the book of Job opens up, remember, uh, with a dialogue, with an entry of the accuser. We see in Ezekiel the devil falling from heaven. We see in Daniel him coming up against the occult and the necromancers and the mediums, all of who claim to have a divine connection to the supernatural. And if we think for a minute that our world is not interested in that, just have a look at Netflix and all the stuff that's on there. There's lots of the supernatural. In the New Testament, it's clear that there is this other kingdom and this other reality that we need to understand as Christians. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Christians are seen as dead to their sins and people who stop following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In 1 John 4, 14, uh, we read, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the... What? Gender... Great, you know that verse? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. There's one in the world. In Ephesians 6, we, we read uh, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the dark forces of this world. So we need to just understand the reality. We often want to downplay this. In fact, there's a quote from a French poet, uh, Charles Baudelaire, I think it is, born in 1844. You might have heard this quote, but the quote is, the devil's cleverest wile is to convince us that he does not exist. But what we're dealing with in this story is the work of the enemy of our soul, one who is revealed in this story as real, that there is this sinister and personal dimension to evil that is directed in our world by Satan and his minions, uh, which, by the way, we understand and see are no match for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these first few verses, we see uh, 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 the other bit of reality that we can see here in these verses is in verse 29. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a detail here that the demons facing, this, facing Jesus that are, have possessed this man uh, there's a specificity that is, feels very real as we read it. Verse 29, they asked Jesus, What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted, Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Uh, the demons understand the power and person of Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, there's, a, there's a reality there, a realness there. They wouldn't be making this up if it, if it wasn't said. It's so specific. They understand his power and his person. And secondly, the demons in this story understand that there is an appointed time when they will be no more, when, when they will be rejected forever. 
And we read about that in Jude chapter 6. That may come up on the screens here, if I can even see that. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for the judgment on the great day. And the demons, they know this. And so there's a reality to this kingdom of the devil and his demons that we need to be aware of. Also, we learn in these first few verses the results of the work of this kingdom. And we see the two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs meet him, and it says they were so violent. So the first result of the work of Satan is violence in the human life and in the human world. Remember the boy in Mark chapter 9, there was a boy who was demon-possessed, which in Greek is actually demon-attacked. And the father's concerned, why? Because the demon makes, makes the boy throw himself into the fire. And in Mark and Luke, we have people who are attacked by demons who are cutting themselves and violently hurting themselves. So violence is a mark of the kingdom of the devil. And the second result we see is isolation. Interesting, isn't it? It says they were so violent that no one could pass their way. No one could pass their way. And isn't that what, 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 what Satan wants for, for everyone? Is to be cut off. Is to be isolated. Is to be hopeless. Is to see no future for their life. And so, so we need to understand that's, where that, that's, that's the result. That's where it leads. And we see a third result in... In, uh, in this, in verse 30, at the end of this little section, uh, the demons suggest to Jesus, after these questions they ask him, hey, some distance from a large herd of pigs was feeding, the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And we see this strange request uh, that is related to the, to the results of the kingdom of Satan and his demons, which is this idea of hatred and rage and... and uh, and, and leads to destruction. Why would the demons, why do they want to go into the pigs? Well, we learn in the story that there, there, there's a hatred for God's creation there. There's a, there's a desire to stir up animosity in that situation there. They don't want a new bodily home because the pigs are going to die. There's something more sinister here. And so violence, isolation, destruction. Gordon Hudenberger, an Old Testament scholar in the Boston area, actually says that we should understand these verses less as demon possession and more as demon dispossession. And the reason for that is that the work of Satan and his minions in Scripture is to dispossess the human person of their God-given dignity, of their God-given standing in his creation, there's a wish to degrade and alienate and hurt. And the good news is we know that in Jesus Christ, there is power for all of that to be restored, to be healed as we come to him as our Savior and our Master and the one who has defeated the devil and everything he's about. So that's a, that's a tricky beginning. I know it's a heavy beginning, but if you see some of those things happening in our world today, just be aware that Scripture teaches us about, about the reality and the results of that kingdom. 
The good news we see in this story, though, comes in verse 32, that the devil is defeated <laughs> through Jesus Christ. Jesus, it says, he said to them, Jesus says to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they died in the water. The demons say three sentences, two questions and a statement. And Jesus just says one word to them, go. It's a word of power and authority. Uh, the demons can't do anything on their own. They have to ask Jesus' permission before they can do it because he is the Son of God. There is no one equal to him. They need permission from him who is God to do their next thing. And we see Jesus all through the New Testament speaking words of authority and power to the storms, be still. And they're still to the waves. Uh, they're still to Lazarus in the tomb, come out. And he comes out from the kingdom of death. And Jesus here says one word, go. And they obey. We see the absolute authority of Jesus, the Son of God. Why is this so public? Why does it have to be a thing where they go into the pigs and this whole horrible thing happens to God's creation? Everyone sees it. Um, why does it have to happen that way? We say, Jesus, why couldn't you save the pigs? Which is a fair enough question. Well, I think the clue to understanding what's happening here is we look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 about the work that God is doing in Jesus Christ. That may be up there. Colossians 2 verse 15, we see what God is doing in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Christ is about. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What we see happening here is a foreshadow of what God is going to do in Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus here in this new territory, in this new region, is actually publicly giving notice <laughs> to, uh, that there is an end to the power of evil in the world, that dying on the cross when Jesus says it's finished, it's public for Romans, Greeks, Jews, for everyone to see. When he says on the cross publicly it's finished, he is defeating evil once and for all. We learn in this story that it's really not a matter of doubt that evil shall be defeated. It's really only a matter of time. Jesus says, go, go back to hell where you belong. Your time is limited. Your time is over. And the response at the end in verse 33 is interesting. Uh, this amazing event happens, and what's the response of everyone in the crowds, those who witness this? Uh, they come back, they see what happened to the demon-possessed man in, in, in Mark and Luke. He's, he's in his right mind, he's, he's dressed, it's over. There's a man back to his state of dignity and rightness. But the town here, what do they say to Jesus? Do they say thank you? Do they say amazing? Do they get down on their knees and worship the Lord? No. The response at the end of this incredible story this incredible public spectacle. The response is, they plead with him to leave their region. And friends, whether this is your first time in church or you're just getting used to Christianity, thinking about it, or whether 
you see yourself as following Christ for a long time, think about this. It's entirely possible for us to not want Jesus in our lives. It's entirely possible for us as we live in this world to actually begin to love the things of this world and even begin to love uh, the things of the ruler of the kingdom of the air more than we love Jesus. The people in this town prefer pigs to the person of Christ, don't they? They prefer swine to a savior. And it's a message for all of us, I think, that it's possible as we come through this world that we can get warped and twisted by sin in our daily and weekly living and how we need to find ourselves every day in prayer, again at the feet of Christ, who loves us, who has conquered evil on the cross, and we need to fall back in love with him and his ways. Uh, And that's the life of joy and discipleship. So that's a strange ending to the story, isn't it? But it's one for all of us to consider. Well, the second part of this passage, we look now at um, Christ's authority not only over Satan, but we look at his authority over sin. Authority over sin. And in chapter 9, we'll, we'll see two parts. We'll see how Christ recognizes sin and then how he removes it. Well, in chapter 9, is kind of this new beginning. It says Jesus steps into the boat and crossed over and came to his own town. So he's leaving that old region, going back to his hometown. There's a lot of ministry, the town of Capernaum. But he's still dealing with these two heavy spiritual situations. And some men, it says in verse 2, bring him a paralyzed person, a friend of theirs. In some gospels, they open up the roof, right, and they lower him down. And it's interesting, Jesus says, saw their faith, and Jesus says to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. Someone who's paralyzed, someone who can't walk, someone who's been struggling with a physical, chronic illness their whole life, who's kind of set aside on the margins of society because he's not able to walk in this case. Strange that Jesus would recognize, right off the bat, the problem of sin, isn't it? Remember, Jesus here is inaugurating his ministry. He's bringing the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here, I think, in this story is that he's recognizing what the most important problem is this man has. The most important problem this man has is the most important problem that all of us have who share with this man, which is not necessarily our our physical ailments, which all of us have in different ways, but it's the problem of sin. It's the fundamental problem that we struggle with as human beings. It's the fundamental problem that Jesus came to address. Remember in Matthew 1, verse 21, It's prophesied. We'll call him uh, Jesus, Emmanuel, and he will save his people from their sins. It's why Jesus comes. There's at least four effects of sin that I'm sure all of you, many of you have heard. And just to remind us why this is such an important thing for Christ to address, we know that sin is something that affects everyone. 
that no one escapes that for all have fallen in Romans chapter 3. We know that sin leads to this terrible human problem of guilt. That is, we sin against, each, uh, against God and we, we break His ways. People who don't even know they're breaking God's ways may experience guilt, but part of the broken world we live in is we struggle with this. We often feel awful, convicted in our hearts when we do something that is sinful or wrong. And what a, what a terrible weight and burden guilt can be on human shoulders. A wonderful burden that can be lifted and Jesus lifts. <laughs> and we, we also know that sin has a power to shatter every human relationship. All right, when we sin, that, that, that breaks our relationship with God, but it also has this ripple effect. Uh, as someone said to me, like a stone in water, it ripples out to all of our relationships at work, at home, our neighborhood, our households. It affects everything. Shatters, cracks those relationships because trust gets broken. And sin in the end results, we also know from Scripture, results eventually in death. There's nothing more important that Jesus can address than this problem that all of us share of sin. And he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. He recognizes that problem right off the bat. What a wonderful what a wonderful word Jesus has to this man. What a wonderful word Jesus has for all of us. And in verse 3, we see now this set of verses, how Jesus emphasizes that sin is removed, that he has authority to remove sin. You know, it's interesting. The, the, the people watching, the teachers of the law, they see Jesus identify this major problem and relieve this man of it. And, and, and their response is, this fellow is blaspheming. What does that mean? He's blaspheming. Well, the teachers of the, teachers of the law are saying, well, look, Jesus, you're, you're insulting God, the name of God. You're insulting God's honor, God's character. And in a way, they're right, because we know from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures, from Isaiah 43, verse 25, and Psalm 51, that, that, well, that it's only God who is able to forgive. I am the one who removes your transgressions, God says, in Isaiah 43. So in a way, they're right. Only God can forgive sins, and they see Jesus doing it. And in verse 4, Jesus sees their thoughts and calls them evil thoughts. Evil because they're, they haven't yet seen who Jesus is. They're blind to what, who Christ is and what he's doing. And Jesus has this rhetorical kind of question to make it very clear that he has power, that his ministry is about removing sin. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. I, I want, you know, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, look, what's going on here? What's going on is, well, it's easier, Jesus is saying, for someone just to say your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say that. Why is it easy to say that? Well, it's easy to say that because we have no, there's no technology, humanly speaking, to check whether or not someone's sins have been forgiven. You can't check the top of their hand, the bottom of their hand. You can't take their temperature. You can't give them an MRI and say, well, you're examined. Forgiveness is an unexaminable condition, spiritually speaking. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm going to do what's visible and what is hard. I'm going to make this man stand up and walk so that you can see I can forgive sin, that I have authority to do it. Jesus proves his authority as one who's able to forgive with this 
act of healing. And he says to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. It's a wonderful word for each one of us who may be struggling under the power of sin. You know, I was driving down the 401, and it's on my mind this week, so I'll share it. I was driving down the 401, and I was, it's amazing how visible sin is sometimes in our lives. I saw this billboard on the big highway, the white billboard, and it was advertising this company uh, that was providing a service for those who are married to have a secret affair. That was the company. That's a company in Canada. And I'm looking at this billboard and I'm saying, wow, that is so in your face on a billboard. Hey, you want to sin? I'll make it easy for us. You know, only you know the sin that you're really struggling with. Only you know that sin that you're being drawn to that feels like it has a, a power over you. But friends, the good news of this passage and the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus changes something about the power of sin in the human life. Although it may feel strong in the first case that in the end it's not, we are baptized into Jesus Christ and his life is in us. We, we have power in our hearts through the life of Christ in us to overcome the temptations in our lives. That it's by his power, not our power to do it. In Jesus Christ, we're living in a place where grace abounds, where his power abounds. Sin is there, but it's, it's not something we have to give in to. We pray, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. And in prayer and in the word, constantly before us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we as Christians have this wonderful access to the power of Christ, sin is broken, and we can live flourishing lives. Friend, if you're living in a sin now that you feel has gotten the best of you, that you can see ruining your life, hey, there's good news. Just ask Jesus, the one who says to this man, get up, walk, your sins are forgiven. That Jesus stands among us today with the power and the compassion to heal you, to forgive you, to heal your relationships. Maybe it's pornography. I'll just say that. That's one of the biggest ones we have around in the Western world right now. It'll ruin your relationships. But Christ is more beautiful. Christ is more powerful. Christ is stronger. He'll fill your heart with his love, with his compassion, with his grace. He'll draw you into the arms and love of our Father. There's nothing in this world like it. Not the power of Satan, not the power of sin. It's a love that's eternal because he's made you. He's our creator, and we're made for glorious relationship with him. Oh, the end of the story, what happens? Real quick, we've got to sum this up. 
It says, then the man got up and, and went home, and the crowds saw this, and they're filled with awe. They're amazed. Oh, they're amazed. What a man. He can deal with sin. Wow. Hallelujah. <laughs> and they praise God who had given such authority to a man. There's the word authority. <laughs> there it is. That's what we're talking about for these four weeks as one with authority. Today over Satan. His kingdom is on the way out, friends. Rejoice in Jesus who has the victory. His authority over sin today. There's a new power on the, on the cross of Christ, friends. We, we can live our lives free of sin and in, in the joy of Jesus Christ. I think there's, real quick, two basic responses I think we can have to the authority of Jesus overall as we end this four-week series on his authority. Two big responses. I think on the one hand, as we look at all of chapter 8, we can be threatened by the authority of Jesus. If we look at chapter 8, we can be threatened by the authority of Jesus. That disciple, Lord, I'll go wherever you want to go. He wanted his comfortable life to stay the same. The disciple who said, Jesus, let me first bury my father. He had these allegiances to the world. He didn't want those to change. Look at the town people. They said, Jesus, get out of here. They're threatened by his authority. I don't want my life to change, Jesus. If you come into my life, I don't know what's going to happen. Look at the teachers of the law. They say, you're blaspheming. Jesus, I'm threatened that if I believe in you, my worldview is going to be changed and challenged. We can be threatened by the authority of Jesus because it will change us. He will change us. Or we can be attracted to the authority of Jesus. And I hope in your heart, by the power of the Spirit today, you may choose this one, to be attracted to the authority of Jesus. Look at the leper. What did he say? He said, Lord, if you're willing. He had an open heart. The centurion, Lord, I'm not worthy. Just say the word. He trusted Jesus. Look at the mother-in-law of Peter. She's healed. She gets up right away. She serves. We can be attracted to his authority and want to serve him as our life goal. The two disciples may have followed him out on the ship in the sea in fear. The disciples are attracted to his authority. They turn from fear to him who is able to save them from the most difficult situation, who today we hear is able to save us from Satan and from sin. The crowds at the end of this whole section are filled with awe which is a status, a situation of, of gratitude, of humility. We can be attracted to him, and we can want to offer our lives afresh in humble allegiance. We may not see it fully now, but we know there is a time when we'll see fully the authority of Jesus, when all those hard decisions in our lives that we make according to who he is will make sense. And I want to read for us real quick, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 4. Hear these words about how it will end. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, 
And the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive or left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will be with the Lord forever. Friends, Christ is returning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Will we live our lives joyfully, humbly, accordingly? Let us bow down, let us pray. Gracious God, how we thank you for your word to us. How we thank you for all that we've seen in these chapters together. And I thank you for the privilege of this time in your word. Send us from here with new hearts, with new eyes, with new hope in him, Jesus Christ, the one in whom all things hold together. Thank you that you hold us, Father, that you love us. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. We give ourselves and our lives to you anew. In Jesus' name, amen.